welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom. I'm Aline Sims, your host, and before I introduce our guests today, there are just a couple of things I want to talk about really fast. First is you may have heard about something that's happening in the gaming um, the gaming and gaming journalism communities. It's been on Twitter as Gamergate. I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm not going to give any more airtime to it than it's already received. But I did want to let you know that if you want to listen to more about that, you can listen to a podcast called Isometric with Brianna Wu, Steve Lubitz, Maddie Myers, and Georgia Dow. They kind of deconstructed it and talked about it quite a bit um, on their last show. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And the second thing is Less Than or Equal is now biweekly for the time being. Um, just because finding guests is a part-time job and it's turning out that I'm only able to get people on about every other week anyway. So, you know, we're going to roll with that for a while and then hopefully we'll get to a point where I can go weekly again. Today's guest is Anna McGill. Anna, welcome. Hi, thanks. It's fun to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. So can you tell um, people who you are? I hope so. (laughs) Um, I'm Anna McGill. I am a game writer or narrative designer or script writer or screenwriter, depending on what company I'm working for and what they decide to call that role. Um, But at the end of the day, what I do is write video games. Um, I've worked at companies like ArenaNet, Ubisoft, uh, Square Enix, Airtight Games, Nintendo, the list goes on. Um, So I have a, a pretty good idea of what the games industry is like and what it's like to be a writer. And I'm hoping to talk about that today. Yes, please. So first thing is, what does a game writer typically do? I know it probably varies a little bit from company to company, but what are the primary responsibilities or the primary things you get to do? Uh, Right. (laughs) I mean, people have weird ideas, I think, sometimes about what being a, a game writer is. And, you know, it's not this wonderful ivory tower where we just write these glorious stories and then hand them off to tech and say, make this happen. Um, I wish it was like that. That would be wonderful. Uh, But what you typically do is you brainstorm and you talk to the people who've created the world. The world builders are usually the the big names on any project. Um, And then you create scenes with them. You tell the actual story. You do the nuts and bolts of the the storytelling in the game. So you write the dialogue between characters, you map out scenes with the designers to make sure that the story elements are included in the gameplay, find ways of telling the story through gameplay. Uh, talk to, to everybody, really. I mean, the wonderful thing about game writing is that it's collaboration. So you're working with every other group of people on the project to realize the world builder's vision for the game. And what you're trying to do at the end of the day is, is impress upon people the story that they want to tell about the characters in the game. And, you know, we do things like writing the descriptions for items in the game, which isn't a lot of fun, um, but there's a lot of that. That's probably the, the bulk of writing is, you know, objectives and item descriptions and UI text. And then we write scenes, we write character descriptions, we write lore background for the world and for the characters. Uh, we go down to the recording studio and record with the voice actors, which is loads of fun. Um, and then we have to process those video files when they come back and make sure that they match up with what we've written and that they make sense in the game. And then we revise, revise, revise. That's pretty much what we do. So you, that's interesting because it's basically, it sounds a lot like, you know, a, a novel writing process plus 
where you create, you know, all of this world that that the player may or may not see. Mm-hmm. But you have all these background stories and all of these, you know, rich experiences that that you know about and that maybe nobody else will, maybe they'll be able to infer it later, but. Well, it depends on the game. I mean, there's a lot of backstory that you're certainly not going to see in some games, but like with an MMO, like Guild Wars 2, that is a very lore rich game. And you have players in there who play it for that reason. And they're going to find out every single detail about the lore that you can give them. And then some, I mean, they'll extrapolate from that and create their own stories. I mean, fan fiction galore. Um, and sometimes offspring games is just is wonderful, but um, yeah, some games that's not going to be readily apparent. You create a lot more than you are actually going to use in the game. I would make the point, however, that it's very different from novel writing in that you have less control over the direction of the final work. I'm not a fiction writer. Um, I I would like to be maybe someday if I ever get an idea. But so I'm thinking about how hard it is for me to write fiction and how um, how much harder it would be with so many constraints. Um, and then working in a team with different ideas where you're trying to, to come up with the best thing. Mm-hmm. It seems like that would be it, simultaneously like really fun and really, really frustrating. It, it is both, absolutely. Um, I personally love it. I One of the reasons I got into game writing is because I like that collaboration. I like being able to bounce ideas off of people and having them sort of one-up my idea that I'm like, oh, I can do better than that, and I come up with a better idea. And, you know, and that sort of, that meeting of minds creates really wonderful things that you might not have thought of on your own. Um, and constraints aren't necessarily a bad thing. They can be sometimes. But you have to be very creative to tell the story you want to tell within certain constraints. And I think sometimes they they make you be more creative than you would be otherwise. Um, so they're just challenges, like any aspect of any writing. You know, you're going to, you know, you're writing a novel, you're limited by what you can do on the page, right? I mean, there's always constraints. So I, I personally think game writing in many ways has fewer just because we have more tools at our disposal for telling that story. Well, and it, also you you have the visual mm-hmm. um, exactly. benefit too that you you might not communicate something in the script necessarily, but you can work with the developers and designers to actually make it real. Yeah, ideally, <laughs> ideally that's what's happening. You know, in a in a good game, you know, you're able to elegantly tell the story, you know, instead of putting up signs everywhere uh, saying, hey, go this way, you can direct players that way with, you know, with light or with good level design, you know, instead of having to fill in this huge backstory about someone's relationship with someone, they, you can find a note that someone left in, in a room that just fills in that part of the story without this long conversation. There are really wonderful, elegant, natural ways of doing that, that I think the best games take advantage of. So... What is your favorite game that you've worked on? Can you pick one? Uh, that I've worked on? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, in terms of the the process of, of making the game, it was Guild Wars 2, just because there was so much good energy on that project. And it, the, for a good part of the development process, the, the feeling at the studio was sky's the limit. You know, no idea is too crazy. If we think it's going to make the game better, throw it out there. You know, and there was really this wonderful creative stew happening 
of everyone just throwing ideas in and, and, and just the sense of, of anything goes. And I have not encountered that at, at any other studio where I've worked. Um, so I would say that was the, the best writing experience for me so far in the inter- industry. I really loved it. So what kind of narratives do you like to write? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Like, what stories do I like? Yeah, like what kind of, because I, I looked at your website a little bit yesterday, and it seems like this the games that you've worked on have kind of been all over the place. Like, you know, you have Guild Wars 2, and then there's, you know, a murder mystery, and then there's... Okay. Yeah, they are. I've worked on a wide variety of games. Probably little as Pet Shop, right? You know, that's a game that doesn't have a lot of story. Um, it's just um, selling you things, and it's cute, and it's for kids, but it's not, you know, the crime murder mystery I, I worked on two years ago. Um, what do I like to write? That's a tough one. I like the project that I'm on. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, every project has its own challenges, and it's it's a rare project that doesn't have anything about it that, that compels me to give my all to that particular story. I'm talking myself into a corner here. Um, <laughs> I do that all the time. Yeah, I, I don't have a favorite. I mean, for me, I, I like personal stories. Like, the games that I enjoy playing aren't necessarily the games that I've worked on. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's not that I haven't enjoyed working on the games I've worked on. It's just that, you know, I, I think I haven't worked on the game yet that really feels like a natural fit for me. And I'm looking for that right now. So... It, my next project hopefully will be a lot closer to the kind of work that I want to put out there and hopefully a lot more of my own inspiration. You know, everything else I've worked on has been a huge collaboration, you know, and certainly Murdered, which is the, the murdered mystery, murder mystery, um, that was the creative director's vision all the way. And we were just there to help him realize his vision. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think you'll have to wait and see what an, an Anna project looks like. Maybe I'll even be surprised by it. Who knows? Well, it kind of sounds like you're open to, you know, just whatever strikes you as, oh my gosh, yeah, this is, this is it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's some projects I would never work on. You know, there are some projects I can look at and I realize I have nothing to say on that particular subject or it's not a game I I'm comfortable contributing to it just doesn't put the ideas out there into the world that I want to be associated with um, but for the most part you know and I've had the luxury to a certain extent of being able to pick and choose my projects I mean that's really an amazing thing I don't think a lot of people in this industry get that opportunity um, and, and so I feel blessed in that sense very honored that I, I've had that luxury of choice but I've never had the luxury of choice like I have it right now where I'm like, the next project I work on is going to be something meaningful to me. And that's it. You know, bottom line, I'm not just going to take it to take a project. So That's awesome. That's empowering. It, it is. And it's rare. I really want to stress that. There are a lot of people out there who are working on games that they feel no personal connection to. And that's a sad statement. But, you know, that's, that's a job. You know, you do what you have to do to pay the bills. So, um... What is, well, first, is there a typical game, typical day when it comes to game development, or is every day a little bit different? It probably depends upon what stage of the process you're in, right? You just answered your own question. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it can really vary. I mean, I like the, the sort of switch up from day to day. I don't fall into a routine and get bored with it. Um, but, you know, that being said, like when something like um, audio files come back from the recording studio, 
that's a massive undertaking that can take months for a game the size of Guild Wars 2. I think I spent over two months processing audio files um, when they came back toward the end of the, the project. So that was pretty routine. I would come in every day and I would process the audio files. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I was also editing text for other people and writing scenes and, you know, updating UI information as the game changed. Um, so it really depends. I mean, the really fun stuff usually happens at the beginning of the project when everyone's brainstorming and throwing out ideas. And toward the end, it's a lot of bug fixing and tweaking and polishing and making sure that everything looks great before it goes out the door. And that simultaneously really being sick of it and wanting it to end and <laughs> not, not wanting it to end at the same time. I was just joking about this with people, I think yesterday, about how I've never shipped a game I wasn't completely sick of, but that that meant that I was doing my job. That meant that I, I looked at everything as much as I should have looked at it. But yeah, usually by the time a game is shipped, I just, I can't even stand it anymore. <laughs> it, that's how I feel in, you know, just my manual typewriting job uh. is, is like I'm, I'm revamping everything that's been written for this platform and and I'm toward the end of it, and I'm just like, you know, I if I never have to look at this again, it's it'll be wonderful. And at the same time, I'm like, but it's gonna be really cool to see it, you know, actually up on the web and people looking at it and that kind of thing. So I totally get that. Since I've started following you on Twitter, it's been I've been paying kind of more attention to kind of that the design of games because um, I'm just really getting back into gaming after not having time for a really long time. And, you know, one I've been playing recently is Child of Light. Okay. And, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, I'm sure you are. Um, and so um, just just looking at how, how they used light and how they used movement to guide people through scenes. And, and I'm really in awe of that because... I know it's not coincidence, you know, I know that, that, that people like you were sitting there going like, okay, you know, this, this needs to do this and it needs to, to move in a certain way. And it's just, um, awe-inspiring, like, like the level of thought that goes into things. Also, um, The Last of Us is a game I really like and how there's room for people to explore, but there's, there's a path, right? You don't, you do the same thing that everybody else has done. You can move maybe a little bit differently, but it's not like you get to choose your own ending and you know how they guide people through that. And just the amount of planning that goes into that to do it well has got to be astounding. I mean, that's why games take so long to make. I mean, or it's one of the many reasons why, I mean, they are just thrown together. I think people would be really surprised by how much thought goes into even the smallest detail of a game that, that's well-crafted. I mean, I do realize some people just slap games together and throw them out there because they're just trying to make some money, and I get that. Um, and no offense to those games or to those people. But you see games where every single element has been thought out and, and contributes to the overall story that the game is trying to tell. Like something like Journey, right? There is not a wasted detail in that game. There is nothing in there that hasn't been thought about as a narrative element. And it, every time I play that game, it blows my mind how everything plays into this whole overarching journey 
that the player is going through. It's in, it's incredible. I mean, for me, that's a game that just dropped my jaw when I was playing it. And I'm like, this is what games should aspire to be. Yeah, in fact, we um, we got a new TV recently. We got a plasma since those are going to start, you know, going away. And so I, I replayed it on like our our new big TV. And it's just, I mean, every I love everything about that game. There isn't a thing I don't like. And it's just it's just gorgeous. It's visually stunning. The music is good. The, you know, we've had friends over who have played it who don't play video games and they've picked up and they've liked it. And it's just stunning. I, I love Journey. I, I'm with you. I mean, I'm a, a huge fan of it. I'm just filled with admiration for what that team was able to create. And none of my friends here in D.C. really play video games, and they've expressed a desire to learn. And I'm like, oh, should I start with Journey? Should I, should I start with that, and then it's all downhill from there? Or, you know, do I build them up to Journey? I mean, but it's always Journey that I'm thinking of. Or, or games like that that really have something special to say. You I, know, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think Journey is a, a good place to start with the caveat that, like, some might not be this good. <laughs> Yeah, all right, fair enough. Maybe maybe I'll start with that. Um, I mean, but there are a lot of really wonderful games out there. I mean, Journey is just a stellar example of how every element works together. But, you know, I do game faves every Saturday, you know, where I just send out a few tweets about a game that maybe not everyone knows about that's doing something I think is really good or really wonderful. Um, I started doing that just because I'd had some bad experiences in the game industry. And I know we're not going to talk about Gamergate, but... It's things like that that sort of make me have to reaffirm my my commitment to this industry because there's a lot you have to go through and there's a lot you put up with. And, you know, having this anger from fans right now is just yet another trial, I guess, that everyone's going through. And so it's good to, to reaffirm the reasons why you're here. And some of these games just bring me so much joy. Playing them is just such a wonderful experience that I, it reminds me why I'm doing this and why it's worth putting up with the bad stuff that we see um, more often than I wish we did. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, I've actually purchased at least one of the games that you've recommended for game faves. Which and, one? Um, <laughs> gone, was it The Tale of Two Brothers? Oh, Brothers, yeah. Brothers, yeah. Um, so I haven't played it yet, but like you recommended it, and then it was on sale on Steam, and I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy it. Um, and... I, I really like that, um, that you're doing that because I'm not, I, I don't have time to play as many games as I want to, you know, maybe if I could take six months off of work and just play games, that'd be good, but <laughs> wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> yeah. So I tend to, I tend to go for games that people have recommended to me. Um, people that, you know, I trust and I trust you to recommend a good game to me. So, you know, I really like that you're doing that. How do you, I mean, obviously you're in the industry, but how do you find these games? Because I'd love to go out and find some games and one Saturday when you're calling for people to to take over for you because you're busy. I'd love to say, hey, Anna, I have one. But how do you find them? Um, I would love, first of all, for you to do that. So let me know if okay. you ever want a guest host. Um, yeah, I have a guest host today. Um, thank goodness, because I'm, leaving here to go to a wedding thing. Um, how do I find these games? Well, most of the people I know, and certainly most of the people I, I talk to on Twitter are involved with the games industry. And I know the projects that they're working on, you know, sort of behind the scenes, we talk about 
their games that they're making, games that they like. I mean, people who are in the industry, we talk about games all the time. I think that's something people don't really understand is it's our lives. We live it. You know, and I haven't ever gone out with a friend in the games industry where I didn't come away with like two recommendations for a title I should take a look at or someone talking about this wonderful game that they're um, working on that I'm like, oh, I can't wait till that comes out because I want to play it. So some of them are friends of mine, you know, and they're making games I'm interested in. And some of them are games that friends have played that they really enjoyed. So I find out about them pretty much the same way you do, um, which is worth it. Yeah, I just, it's just, we're breathing it in every day and we're closer to the source. So um, it's, it's very easy to get these recommendations. Hmm. I need to figure out a way to, I'm making more and more friends um, in the gaming industry because of this podcast, which has been fabulous because, you know, I'm learning about all these, all these different, different things that I never even um, thought about before in terms of like actually developing games and then from like a player standpoint. And um, so this just affirms to me that I need to find more and more people um, who are in the gaming industry to, you know, start playing their games and be like, oh yeah, I really loved that. And um, You absolutely should. I mean, you're on Twitter and I, I see that you're already following a, a lot of gaming people. I mean, that's the way to do it. I mean, I, I'm excited when people who follow me want to talk about video games. You would think I'd get enough of that, right? <laughs> you would think, but I, I don't. I mean, it's always so exciting to me to see it through their eyes, like getting feedback, like genuinely helpful feedback from fans. I live for that. You know, even if it's sometimes hard criticism to take, it, it helps me be a better game writer. Um, so I, I really appreciate it. And I wish more fans weren't shy about that. I mean, I, I understand that they're trying to be respectful and they're just, you know, trying not to bug me, but I love it. I mean, people write to me through my website and talk to me about games and I, something people may not know, I respond to every single contact form that comes through my website, every single one, even if I, someone's trying to harass me, you know, I'll write back going, nice job, you know, way to harass, you know, whatever. I respond to everybody. So um, I wish more people would write to me and talk to me about games. You should just hit up anyone who makes a game that you're interested in and talk to them about it. I guarantee they, they want to hear it. Okay, cool. So I do this every time I interview somebody, well, almost every time, where I, um, I talked to Adriel Wallach, um, oh, I don't know, several weeks ago, and she does a train jam before GDC every year. Well, no, not every year. She started last year and she's repeating it again this year. And so I'm talking to her about train jam and I'm like, I totally want to totally want to go on train, train jam this year. And I'm talking to you and I'm like, well, maybe I could be a game writer. A games writer. <laughs> so how do people get started? I imagine that there is no one path to getting started in the industry. There's, there's not. It is an incredibly competitive industry. I, that's something I feel compelled to warn people when they say that. Um, it, so many people want to get into it. And there are a lot of people who, who are like, I know how to write. I'd be a great game writer. And not realizing that there's a very specialized set of skills that you need. But if you are a good writer, I mean, genuinely are a good writer, and you, you are, certainly. You're getting paid to do it. So you're obviously, you've got some talent. Um, my advice would be to network on Twitter. Um, as you are already doing, write to game companies that you want to work for, for who are making the kind of games that you want to be part of and see what's available. You know, apply for positions, make sure your work's out there for them to look at. 
um, try to get together a few sample pieces that show them what you can do. Um, and, you know, maybe take a job in QA. That's how I got my start. I started off testing games and then worked my way up from the inside, just reminding people that I could write and showing them samples of my work and just slowly built up uh, a resume within the company until I could, I could qualify for game writing. Um, but that's not the only way to do it. I know people who started out as games journalists and made the switch to game writing just because they had a, a great understanding of what was required for the job. Uh, one of the people I worked with at ArenaNet was actually a level designer for a long time. He had an art background, but uh, he his writing was fantastic. He just had a deep understanding of, of what was required in each scene to convey those ideas, whether you know, visually or through text. Um, and that was a natural transition for him. So there were many, many ways in. Um, but I would say network, get your work out there, try to get a job at a company if you can, any job, and then work your way up. Um, I also have a, a game writing FAQ, like specifically geared toward game writers, on my website if people want to check that out. That's AnnaMcGill.com. Easy to remember. And I've I've actually read through that, and I really like that you've been um, your willingness to kind of share with people. I think that's great because so often people are just like, you know, I'm just doing my thing and. Um, just leave me alone. And I really, really appreciate about you that you're willing to talk about it. Like, I love your passion. It's, it makes me passionate. You know what I mean? Yes, I, I do. I'm glad. That's exactly what I'm hoping for. I, I want more people to get in. I especially want, you know, people who are not well represented in our industry to get in. You know, I want women in. I want people of color coming in. I want people of all backgrounds and ethnicities and experiences to come and add their voices to the games that are being made. I think it's critical that we, we do that and we stop just kind of making the same games over and over again. Um, so, yes, I'm glad that I'm communicating that. And that's the reason I'm doing it, because I, I want people to, to look past things like the ugliness that's happening on Twitter right now and in the game industry and see what it's really all about, you know? And, and if I can convey that passion and how wonderful it is to go into work every day and do something that you love doing, then good. I want people to know that that's a big part of it. Yeah, and I don't, so maybe this isn't the time, but I'm going to anyway. Um, you know, one thing that's been so frustrating for me is kind of, I haven't said a lot on Twitter because I just don't want to give it more more than it's already getting, you know, and, but one thing that's so frustrating about this whole Gamergate thing, and again, listeners, you know, isometric is a wonderful place. You know, it's a good thing to listen to just in general, but they did a really good overview of what's been happening. But, you know, women, and people of color, and people who are not, you know, cis, and all of this stuff, they offer such rich, diverse perspectives on things. And we we get stuck in this monoculture. And like you said, we, we get the same games over and over and over again. And, you know, I talked to Brianna Wu about it a little bit. She was actually the first person who came on the show for me. I listened to your interview with her. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Um, but, you know, she was talking about how Giant Space Cat, her studio is all female, except for her husband, who's a Hugo award winning artist. 
um, how he um, how he he's done like some set design sh- uh, ship designs for them, but otherwise it's all women. And I I was like, oh, that's really cool. And she said, no. She's like, I'm looking to hire more men and more people from different backgrounds to diversify the story. And I was like, oh, she's she's totally and completely right. And I, you know, we need we need more people from more perspectives and points of view and new innovative storylines and ways to tell stories. I agree. I do. I actually I spoke at PAX about this um, a couple of years ago, I think in, in 2012, about how um, we're all sexist and we don't know it. I mean, I was focusing on that aspect of it because of some experiences that I've had at work where people I know who are genuinely trying hard to to not be sexist and to not be racist and to not do terrible things in games sort of end up resorting to these tropes that are so familiar to them because they just don't know any other way to do it. That's just what they've seen. And a lot of the times they don't, they haven't thought about it to think that it might be offensive to someone else. And I, I was in a meeting with a, a group of people and these guys just kept throwing out all these incredibly sexist ideas, you know, unaware that that's what they were doing. And it, it took the woman in the room to be like, can we please not do it that way? And to point out, what was happening and as soon as they realized it, like as soon as I pointed it out, they're like, Oh my God, you're right. No, this is, this is terrible. And we came up with more interesting ways of telling those stories, but that's why it's so important to have that. It, even if it's just that one voice, that one person there who can be like, Hey, this has been done a million times. Can we please tell something that's not this boring? You know, can we try to find something that's more interesting and that's not going to offend people and that's, you know, a, a new slant on this this tired old way of telling this particular information. And I think it makes for more interesting characters, for more interesting gameplay. Certainly, it's nice to, to play through a game and as a person of color or as a woman to not have to roll your eyes at some of the representations of, of those kinds of people in games. So I, I think Brianna's right. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, she's such a... I, she's so outspoken and I, I love her for that mm, um, but she's just like yeah she's this bastion of sort of like okay they told me that if I as a woman wanted to make a video game you know and I didn't like what was out there I should do it myself so I did and she hired women just to sort of get more women into the industry and now she feels compelled to, to diversify even that I think that's fascinating I'm gonna have to talk to her about that I'm just I'm just wondering what brought that about, like what the limitations were that she felt and the perspectives they had. I'm I'm intrigued by that now. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's excellent for someone who is such like you said, a bastion of, you know, feminism and equality, um, just in general, but specifically in gaming, saying, you know, this is this is not how it should be, you know. It it's not one or the other. It needs to be both. I think there's a lot of power in that. Oh, I I agree. I the great thing about Brianna is, I mean, there's a lot of great things about Brianna, but she doesn't take from anybody. Oh, sorry. No, it's fine. No, don't worry about it. Yeah, she doesn't. She she tells it like it is, and she's not. I mean, as much as she's questioning what other people are doing, and she's questioning how the industry is. And she's really putting herself out there. She's she's questioning her own self and her own motives and her own team and, and her own ideas about representation as she goes. Like she's not closed minded, which is this accusation I think that gets leveled at, at many people who are outspoken about these things. She's 
she's trying to educate herself as much as she's trying to educate the people around her. And I have a great deal of respect for that. I feel like I'm talking about her behind her back, though. Sorry, Brianna. Well, we can tell her. We talked about you a lot. You can listen, and, and then it'll be okay. Fire right now. <laughs> Flames shooting up to the ceiling. <laughs> um, well, and, you know, to that kind of to that point, I talked to Ash Dryden um, recently, and she's you know, she goes into um, corporations and helps them diversify and that kind of thing. So I had her on the show, and... and we were talking about how step zero is really having a willingness to recognize that your perspective might be harmful to other people and a willingness to work on changing that. And I feel like, um, I feel like we need more of that. And I feel like that's something that, you know, Brianna's exhibiting is like this step zero. Okay. There are other other things I need to be doing, other things I can be doing, what, and actually seeking those out. And that's something that I really respect. Agreed. You know, and I'm glad that people are out there doing it. The amount of harassment that they face is just unreal to me. I mean, if I if I had that amount of of hate thrown at me every day, like I see Brianna get on, you know, through her email and on Twitter, I. I, I don't think I could handle it on that level. I really don't. It's bad enough to get the stuff that I get, but certainly she gets 20 times more than I do. So Yeah, wow. and Ash, too. She she has a screener for, you know, her her Twitter accounts and for her email. Um, she is very open about going to therapy because she receives a lot of harassment, and she still gets up and does it. You know, she's – today I know she was speaking at a conference, and then have you heard about AlterConf at all? Uh, I haven't actually. It's, no. um, there are these micro regional tech talks kind of, um, from people of diverse backgrounds. And it's kind of, I think she put it as, um, it's a step beyond diversity 101. And so it's actually talking little, I think it's a three hour conference that where people come up and talk about, you know, things they've learned or things they've done or whatever. So they're in Boston, I believe, on Monday. And so um, Maddie Myers is one of the people speaking. Um, there's someone, I cannot remember her name, but Ken Gagney interviewed her on the Polygamer podcast that aired last week. And she's um, she's a voice actress and she also works in, I don't know if she works in game design. I can't remember, but she also has a, a master's degree in like kind of these studies of diversity and she's speaking. And so they're, I think they're going to be in D.C. pretty soon if you want to. Well, I will definitely check. If you're at all interested. But it sounds really fascinating. It does. It's nice that they're able to deepen that conversation because we do spend so much time on you know, diversity 101 and feminism 101. That there's not like a second level class you can take. You know, and that sounds like finally they're getting to discuss those things. That's wonderful. Yeah, I really, um, I have a lot of respect for Ash and what she's doing, too. There are so many awesome people doing so many amazing things that, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's an amazing time to be in the industry. You know, it's an interesting time in the sense of the old Chinese curse, you know, maybe live in interesting time um, in that there's a lot of change happening and so much of it is very good. And so much of it is terrible. Like, I've just been devastated uh, that Jen Frank and Maddie Bryce have decided not to write about games anymore because, for me, they were two of the most interesting voices talking about these things. And I learned a lot from both of them, and I always found Jen's articles really moving. 
And I'm saddened that they've been driven out of this industry um, by people. And that it, it makes me sad on the one hand, and it sort of makes me more determined on the other hand to, to keep fighting this fight and to keep trying to get these other voices heard. Um, but it's been hard. Yeah, I feel like we're on the cusp. You know, yeah, I've been saying this for like a couple months. We're on the cusp of something. Um, and whether that actually ends up being a, a regression or progress, I don't know. But I, I, you know, I hope it's better. I hope it gets better for more people. I, I can say that, that being in game dev, I, I do see a difference. I've been doing this now for 10 years. And, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, I worked with uh, Brenda Braithwaite now, um, Brenda Romero, on the Playboy the Mansion game. And so right from the very beginning in my career, I was exposed to these really wonderful feminist voices. Like she worked there, Clarinda American worked there, and they were already questioning the status quo. So that was my indoctrination. So for me, you know, I've been hearing this discussion since the very beginning, you know, throughout my, my 10 years in the industry. And I feel very privileged that that was how things started out for me. Um, but I noticed that it's a wider conversation now. Like, you know, there are people talking about these issues and questioning, do we really have to have, you know, a 30-something white male stubbled brown-haired protagonist for every single game? And that was never questioned before, you know? It was just a given. And I think now that there there's enough that people are starting to say, hey, maybe we could have, you know, a male and female playable character, or maybe we could have, you know customizable aspects of the game, you know, and just tell it from different perspectives. And these were just issues that weren't even, they weren't even out there really when I first started. And now they're pretty common conversations to have. Even if you don't end up getting that diversity in the game, you are at least having discussions about it that weren't taking place before. And I think that's an improvement. Um, but I will also say that there is a lot of pushback still. And there's a lot of beliefs in game dev that aren't, I don't know, I, people have statistics for both sides, they have studies for both sides, you know, and there's a lot of heated debate, as I was discussing today on Twitter, people don't know what's going on behind the scenes a lot of the time, you know, I, I'm getting into Gamergate again, I, I don't want to go there, um, but there is change taking place, and I am not sure either which way it's going to go, I do feel like there has been a lot of progress made, and I do feel like, um, there aren't the assumptions being made that were being made before, but I don't feel that there's been enough considering how long this conversation has been going on. And I do think that some of the recent pushback is going to affect it negatively, unfortunately. Uh, just in terms of driving people out, I mean, I've never had so many women devs write to me or have conversations with them as I've had recently where we're all like, is it really worth it? You know, I, is it worth putting up with the things I put up with every day just to do my job, just to do the thing that I love? So, um, and it's not even just women. I mean, people of color have it even worse. And I mean, the games industry is so white. Um, and yeah, it's hard to find people like yourself to, to have as role models if you're a person of color. It's really difficult. And I, my heart goes out to those people. I've been speaking to a lot of them. And they're like, should I even try? Is it even worth it? You know, do I have be the, the pioneer so I, there's been a, a lot of discouraged talk recently and that for me in game dev is, is what i'm seeing the most of these days just a sense of is it pointless you know why are we doing this so 
so why don't we create a game studio where we seek women and people of color and all genders and all sexuality and, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, let's kickstart this. and Let's start something. But it probably, I don't know that it would kick, it would take off the way I'd want it to. Well, I think that's what Brianna's doing, right? I mean, that's basically what Space Cat's all about, right? Yeah. And she's getting so much crap for it. It's just amazing to me. Like, it kind of makes you think that they weren't serious about her starting her own studio and making her own game. I don't know. But you also have places like Minority Media, right? And that's sort of their goal, too, um, to, to get those underrepresented voices heard. And they have a pretty diverse crew there. Um, so I, I think that those studios are out there, um, but they're small. And these are exactly the places that are being targeted right now. So um, they're going to be hit the hardest by all this. And they're the ones that I see sort of questioning you know, how to go forward. So maybe, um, hmm. I actually hadn't heard of that studio before, so I'm going to look into them and see if I can. Minority Media, they make a Papa Leo. Have you played that? No, I saw you recommend that, and um, and I decided not to play it because I worked with abused kids for a while, and I was like, I don't think I can emotionally handle that. Uh, it looked, I watched, you know, like a trailer for it and it looked beautiful and it looked like an interesting take on things, but I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, if it's any consolation, it's very tastefully done, but if you do have a um, bad associations with it, it might be very hard for you. I can understand that. Um, a lot of the games that I recommend for game faves, I think are things that if people you know, have those issues in their own lives, it, it might be very difficult. The path, for example, I mean, any woman who's experienced uh, sexual abuse or, you know, anyone who has experienced that would have a, a difficult time, I think, with some of those themes. It's, it's hard. Yeah. But I think it's important that games have reached a stage where we're talking about these things. So most of the games that I recommend on Game Faves are things that would be very hard for anyone who had any kind of baggage, like the path, for example, would be hard for anyone who had a history of sexual abuse or rape in their, in their background, you know. I, even though it's handled beautifully, especially for, for a game, uh, I mean, those issues are, are tough to face. I'm glad games have matured enough that, that we're talking about those issues now. But, um, yeah, it, I, they're not for everybody. I can understand that. Well, and even one thing that I'm really loving, I haven't played it yet, but is Depression Quest, um, which, you know, I've heard has helped a lot of people who are working through depression. I think Zoe released it right after Robin Williams' death, I think, for free. And then, you know, people started playing it and they're like, this is really excellent for people, people like me, people who need help. This is helping me. And that's a game that's on my list, too to play through and see, you know, see how she handled that because I just, I think it's so amazing that we can use games as a medium to help people through, through difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just finished playing it. So, uh, yeah, I feel qualified to talk about it now. Yeah, please do. Um, you know, the one great thing that's come out of all this horror is that it made me play depression quest. You know, I'm like, I need to find out why people are so upset and I genuinely do not understand except that it doesn't fit their narrow definition of what a game is, honestly. Um, and because, you know, Zoe Quinn is Zoe Quinn, unfortunately, um, for her, <laughs> packed that way. 
Um, but it was good. I'm not depressed. Um, I, I don't suffer from depression, but it was a window for me into what it's like for those people and to realize, you know, how very callous I've been on many occasions, you know, to people who are going through it because I, I haven't understood, you know, and if it can make someone who's not experiencing it go, oh, wow, this is really a terrible thing. My God, look how it colors their entire life. You know, I, that's wonderful. I mean, that's an educational tool as, as well as a, a tool to help people get through it. So, I mean, that's an incredibly important thing that she's achieved there. And I think if you're interested in playing it, you should tune into John Ryan's game, Fave, today, because I think he's um, talking about a game which he's going to compare to Depression Quest. So uh, maybe worth checking out. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I just... I think I think there's so much we're missing out on. I'm so glad that we have people like you in the industry, you know, talking about what's going on, but also like working, actually working to make it more inclusive and more appealing for a variety of people. I mean, um, again, talking about Polygamer with King Gagney, he had um, Sherry Graner Ray on a couple of weeks ago, and she actually wrote a book. Way back in, in the 90s, right? Gen- Gender inclusive game design. I own it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I I want to read it. It's just I I can't get my hands on it. She was pointing out things in her book like don't hold your business meetings at strip clubs because it makes female employees feel uncomfortable. I mean, the fact that she felt she had to point that out to people shows how bad things can get sometimes. Yeah. And we sort of laugh about it, like, oh, I can't believe we'd even have to mention that, but it still happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it still happens in this industry. I mean, maybe not a business meeting being held in a strip club, but, you know, you go to a lot of these conventions and the parties for certain companies are being held at, what, brothels and strip clubs and stuff. And it's just, it's very difficult as a, a woman dev to be in that environment and you're focused on, you know, networking or your career or something like that in an environment where women are being treated as entertainment for men or for, you know, yeah, it's really hard. Um, and I, I, it's always shocking to me that has to be pointed out to people that there's something wrong with that. Um, but that's just one small part of her, her book. Yeah, well, and she was talking to Ken about, um, Ken's a friend, which is why I talk about him, but but she was talking to him about um, when she wrote the game, the pushback that she got, you know, is as you would probably expect. And, and she's like, I'm just trying to help them make more money. Like, this is more money for you. Why are you so opposed to, you know, having one, one playable character who's female? What is that hurting you? So it's um, it's kind of interesting that that hasn't changed a whole lot. It, it hasn't, you know. And Clarinda Maripin, I think in like two thousand and four, I want to say, uh, spoke at was it GDC or PAX? I can't remember. One of the two uh, about you know women holding the majority of of disposable income in America, like women controlled. I think the statistics she gave was like. 75 cents on every dollar in the American household gets spent by women. You know, why would you not want to court that crowd? And I believe the the big quote from her speech back then was, you know, I can't imagine the president of Coca-Cola saying, yeah, we're not getting, you know, women to drink our product, but that's okay. We're comfortable missing out on like half of our potential audience. It just would never happen. They'd be like, how can we capture that? But what I'm seeing a lot of, you know, these days, 
are especially with the we have these statistics now that you know 47 48 percent of um players are women people going well why should we change anything if women are already playing our games so that's the new argument now that i'm seeing it's like you have women telling you that they're uncomfortable that they're overlooking this and that they're buying the product despite the fact that you're like actively offending them with some of these things and your response to that is why should we change it if you're still buying it which you know i from a business standpoint i kind of get but also wow <laughs> yeah well and the thing that that statistic is missing too is what kind of games are they playing you know and i've heard the argument well they're just playing candy crush which let's just throw that aside for now but but is it is it is it women playing candy crush i know that i play a lot of you know threes if i have five minutes that i need to kill and i'm actually cut up caught up on twitter you know i'll i'll break out threes and play for a little bit so so is it that you're appealing to women or that women are just buying different kinds of games and maybe you need to diversify because someone else is getting all of that business um, that's fair. I mean, if women really are only playing casual games, and I think we know that that's not true. No. Um, you know, and there are plenty of men playing casual games too. Um, but even if that was the case, I mean, what's happening in the games industry right now is that we see the, the mid-sized game companies disappearing. Um, that, those are the people who've really taken the hit. Like, you don't find too many studios like Double Fine anymore. Um, they're, they're a rarity. You know, and I know in the Seattle area, most of them have been had to lay people off and have closed. You know, there just aren't that many left. You have these big super companies that are doing great. You have these really small companies that only have a few people in them that are pushing out casual games and are, are doing fine. Or, you know, they're pushing out casual games under these big umbrellas like King, you know, um, or PopCap, or I guess PopCap's had its own trouble, Big Fish, places like that. Um, but, you know, these people who were in the middle who were trying to make these changes and be conscientious about it have just disappeared. So now we have to try to find some middle ground between these extremes, between the people who are making console games, which they claim that women don't play, and people who are making casual games that they acknowledge everyone plays and they welcome anybody and they just, you know, want to make a little money. So I think it'll be interesting to see how we, we reconcile that in the, the coming years. Right. Yeah. I feel kind of sad. <laughs> I, it breaks my heart because my favorite places to work were those those mid-sized game companies. They were, I, that's just, it was a good fit for me, you know, and I've worked on a lot of AAA titles now, and, um, you know, I those are great, but they're just a completely different beast, you know, they're, they're a different dev experience for me, and I... I really am drawn much more to the smaller size projects where I feel like I can have a, a greater contribution. So, And that's what I was going to say with small to mid-sized companies, whether it's, you know, game dev or just working in general, you, you feel a piece of ownership, or at least that's my experience is I feel like, oh, I have helped this company grow and I have brought this, you know, product or the service to, to people and it's helping, you know, whether it's helping entertain them or if it's helping, I came from healthcare before my current job, you know, you know, it's, it, it's having a meaningful impact on people. And, um, that's harder to say, I think when you're working at, at really big companies. I, I don't know that is necessarily true. Um, because you are able to reach more people with what you are saying. That's true. Um, 
So what you do put into the game is going to have a huge impact. You know, these are going to be games that in some cases shape people's lives. I know fans who, you know, have found a character in the game that I that they identify with and they've tried to be more like that person, you know, when they've written to me saying, you know, thank you, the story affected me in this way or that way. So there's always that. And, you know, and if you were a good game dev, and I like to think that I am, uh, you feel a commitment to any project that you're on. And you want to make it the best that you can possibly make it, you know. But that being said, in a big project, your impact on it is lessened. Like, it's just filtered by so many other people. So you may throw your idea in there with everyone else's, but it may not be your idea by the time it comes out in the game. And I think that's the difference between AAA and, and smaller titles. Yeah, you get a smaller, you have a smaller piece of that involvement, I guess. Right, it, it's a it's a more adulterated piece, I guess, I would say. I, I mean, you just, there's, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without, like, NDAs are crazy things. Um, you just have more control over the content in a smaller company. The, the bigger the company, the more people have to vet it, the more people are going to change it, the more approvals it has to get. Um, and I, it becomes less yours, I guess, is how I would put it. Yeah, and I think that's what I was kind of referring to earlier with the the constraints at the beginning of our conversation is, you know, yeah, you can you can brainstorm all you want, but if you know the the people in control, the people who have final say so don't like it, then you know what are you going to do? So in a way, what you brainstorm is kind of I don't know skewed toward what you think is going to get passed. Um, Absolutely. In the end, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had one project, I'm not going to name any names, but I worked on a project where we had a, um, a creative director who was very strict, and uh, his vision was the vision for the game. And uh, we, as a writing team, were not doing what we considered our best writing necessarily. We were trying to write things that we felt would please the creative director. I mean, very much. Um, I changed my writing style. I know the other writers had to adapt to a certain, certain extent. So, um, yeah, it, it becomes less authentic. It becomes less authentically yours, I'd say. You know, in some cases, that's fantastic. I mean, like, if you have a, a creative director with a very strong vision, I mean, think about Journey, right? I mean, that was a – someone had a vision. Jennifer Chen had a, a vision there, right? And everyone bought into it and contributed to it. But you can tell that someone – that that was of a piece. Right? And everyone contributing to that helped realize that. And so I don't necessarily think that, you know, altering what you're doing to fit that overarching vision is necessarily a bad thing to do. But it can become problematic if, you know, depending on the director, depending on the vision. So, again, at least from project to project, you just don't know what you're going to get. And there's there's definitely potential for growth there, right? Like, like I need to, I need to take my writing style and I need to, you know, shift it this way a little and I need to do this a little different. And then you have more skills in your toolbox, right? But there's also that, that point where it feels disingenuous and um, frustrating, I guess, because it's just not, not your best. Right. If you're being asked to do less than your best work or, or less than what you consider your best work, it is frustrating. But 
having to face challenges like how can I deliver what this person wants in a way that feels authentic to me, I mean, that's sort of what game writing is all about. You know, it's it's taking your own voice and fitting it into a larger vision. That's that's what your job is, basically. I mean, I get people who have very strong voices who who write to me about becoming game writers and I have to write back to them and say, you know, you can't write for games and expect to have this voice in there. And if you can only write in your voice, you can't write for games. You have to be able to to adapt the voice that you need for that particular project. You have to be able to write in all different kinds of dialects and voices and, and from different points of view. And if you can't let go of your own voice enough, which may be a wonderful thing for journalism, to have a strong voice. Like Jen Frank has a wonderful voice for for writing about games, but unless she was able to adapt that, you know, and, and take on these different personae, I I don't know how successful she'd be as a game writer. I'm sure she'd be fine. I just I'm not criticizing her in any way. I'm just giving her as an example. Um, and that's really important. You have to sort of disappear in a sense. Well, and I think that's true of writing for any audience. So I think of one of my favorite authors is Neil Gaiman. Um, and he because, part of the reason is because he's he's so diverse. He writes, you know, books for preschoolers. He writes novels for adults that are just completely off the wall. He writes um, Sandman uh, graphic novels. And he's he's excellent at all of that, in my opinion. I know not everybody loves him, but but I really I really respect him because he has this wide range of of ability. He can write for a bunch of different audiences and a, a bunch of different mediums because, you know, writing for a graphic novel is obviously very different than writing a novel and um, kind of that flexibility and creative thinking is something that I really, really admire and respect. And it sounds like that's one of the paramount skills you have to have to be a, a game writer. I, absolutely. He also has a very strong voice. Like when you're, when you're reading Neil Gaiman, you know, you're reading Neil Gaiman, though, right? Um, and that would be something that to a certain extent he would have to tone down in, in Gaiman. You know, you couldn't have a piece of dialogue by one person and suddenly a very distinctive Neil, Neil Gaiman line unless he was the big name on the project. I think he is working on a game. I think he is too. I remember yeah. hearing about that, but I couldn't tell you what it was. Yeah, I don't I don't know if a lot of details have been released. I don't I, I follow him kind of loosely, but we have been tweeting uh, for I a long took a break. He took that hiatus at the beginning of the year and it was so sad. I was so glad when he came back. Uh, Wayward Manor? Oh, uh, yep. That's the name of it. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. But so um we're coming up on probably pretty close to an hour, but so I'd like to ask you before we we go, um, what do you think the top skills are for a games writer since we've kind of touched on that a little bit? Um, patience <laughs> is, is a big one. Um, patience certainly in getting into the industry. And then once you're in there, um, the patience to, to work through a lot of the stuff that you have to do as a game writer, which as I've you know, touched on before, a lot of it is just sort of, you know, repetitive work like UI text and working in spreadsheets and processing files and stuff, which is not what most people think of when they think of game writing, but is a huge part of your job. So you need to, you need to be able to, to see the big picture and be able to 
to deal with sort of a day-to-day drudgery in a sense and, and not get tired of it and not lose your passion for games or, or your vision for how you want things to be. Um, good communication skills in, in every sense. Uh, you have to be a good writer, obviously, but you also have to be able to communicate with the people around you. You, you need to work well with every department there and to communicate how you want a scene to be, what you want to get across to the player, what they're supposed to know, how something's supposed to look. I mean, every tiny aspect of the game is something that you're going to need to to be involved with. Um, and you need to be able to compromise. You know, it's not your project. You know, I've seen a lot of writers just get very upset over what I consider minor details. Um, and you have to be able to let that go and to look at the big picture again and and understand what your part in it is and how you can work with other people to to make something maybe better than you were thinking yourself. Um, so those are, I think, the, the biggest challenges. Um, letting go for me is always the hard one. It's what I always talk about because you get very attached to what you write. I do anyway. I do too. These are my, these are my babies. And, uh, you know, you send them out there and you hope people like them and people come back and like, your baby's ugly. Aww. And, you know, you have to, I mean, that's the joke in QA. It's like you have to delicately tell someone in dev that their baby's ugly. And it's hard because they're attached to it and they, they want it to work. But as a game writer, you have to understand when to let that go, you know, when to, to kill your darlings, you know. And sometimes you have to let so much go. Like you've spent a lot of time working on something, like maybe a few months trying to to work something up and you think it's good and all of that gets thrown out and it's it's a very difficult moment to sort of reorient yourself toward the new design direction and and try to repurpose something that you've written or try to repurpose the idea that you had for it and if not then just let it go and say okay this is where we're going now and it, it I don't know I mean for me when I first got into games that was the hardest part was was sticking to what the game needed rather than what I thought it needed. Um, I think I'm better at it now, though. I hope. It's a skill. It's an acquired skill. You do. You, you do get better at it. You get better at, uh, at understanding when something's worth fighting for and when it's not. Hmm. Well, <laughs> that, was, that was very profound. Um, is, there, is there anything else you want to talk about before we go? I would just say that to anyone who's listening to this, um, they probably already follow me on Twitter, but uh, if you don't, please do. Please don't hesitate to ask me questions or to come to my website and see the stuff that I have there and talk to me. Um, I am always here to encourage young people to come into the industry. I'm always here to talk about the process. I try to be very transparent about it because I think there's way too much mystery surrounding the dev process and it's unnecessary. Um, we should be able to talk about how creators do what they do, you know, and I, I love it and I want other people who love it to come join me and, and collaborate with me. Um, and I guess finally, I would like to say thanks for having me. <laughs> this was fun. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, what's your Twitter, Twitter handle? Uh, it's at Sinixy, C-Y-N-I-X-Y. And your website's animagill.com? That's me. I'm so glad you came on. I have greatly enjoyed talking to you. Uh, same here. Yeah, I learned a little bit about you today, Aline. So that was exciting. Yeah, I try. I, I try. Thank you so much, Anna. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, I will talk to you on Twitter. Absolutely. 
I'd like to thank Anna for coming on the show, and I'd like to thank you for listening. You can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it'd be great if you'd leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.